is the season, dear listeners, the season for giving good tidings and cheer. There is certainly enough horror going around. It's nice to find something joyous and merry in podcasts. And this episode, friends, is my gift to you. We have not one, not two, not three, but four stories to tell. And Ryan Daly is going to share them with four different guests. Some who have already appeared on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, and some making their first appearance. The four stories on today's episode come from the anthology Elvira's Haunted Holidays, also known as Elvira's House of Mystery Special Issue 1, for inventory purposes. The book is cover dated 1987, but would have been on sale on December 18, 1986, just a week before Christmas. So pour a glass of eggnog and gather around the fire, listeners, because after this promo, Ryan and his guests are going deep inside Elvira's house. And no, I don't regret that phrasing. Happy Holidays! A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up. And from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Welcome back, everybody, and happy holidays to you. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest, making his way from the Supergirl blog and the Legion of Super Bloggers, a longtime close friend of the network, Dr. Ange. What's up, man? Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to do this book. I'm a big fan of the Christmas holiday, and I'm a small fan of Elvira, but I certainly <laughs> see her appeal. Um, and uh, after the lunacy that was Event Leviathan and all of my thoughts there, it's good to settle into um, into this story. I, I, I should have uh, should have described you as Brian Michael Bendis' personal like torture victim or something. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm excited to see how that all plays out. He said that in a comic in February, there's a character that's named after me. 
me. So uh, I can't wait to see what that's like. That is very, very cool. Uh, he should be so honored, especially with what fate I imagine befalls that character. Yeah, yeah. As PJ Frightful mentioned before the break, we are covering the first story from Elvira's House of Mystery special number one, which is a Christmas story starring Elvira herself. Before we dive into the story, Ange, any thoughts on Christmas comics in general or Elvira in particular? Well, I'll say from a Christmas comics point of view, I've always been a sucker for like the anthologies that DC Comics would put out around the holiday. So I can remember getting really, I think, was the first one where there's that story where the Legion of Superheroes follow the Star of Bethlehem and end up saving a bunch of aliens across the way. Of course, uh, on this very network, I've covered um, the Alan Brennard story, uh, Should Old Acquaintance, where Dead Man Meets Like the Ghost of Supergirl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even more recently, um, I've picked up some of the, the DC ones. There's a great Supergirl and Batgirl stories uh, called like A Day Without Sirens, where behind the scenes, Supergirl and Oracle at that point stop all crimes in Gotham City so that the police can have a day off. So, um, <laughs> so I usually pick these up because um, I just kind of I'm a sucker for these sort of, um, you know, sentimental like, you know, you know, man is good. Uh, the holidays bring out the best in people sort of stories. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and Elvira. I mean, you mentioned being a small fan of her, but uh, yeah, you know, I don't necessarily think that um, I caught any of the true like movies where she was the hostess. I certainly know her from commercials and things like that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as a young lad, when she was probably a younger lass, uh, um, I certainly found the uh, appeal to her plunging neckline. And <laughs> and she just seemed like, you know, I'm a guy that watched, you know, bad monster movies every Saturday afternoon growing up. So uh, so the, the concept of like that monster movie host who's kind of fun and in her case kind of sexy i could definitely see you know uh, the appeal to her and liking her i just don't know if i had the opportunity to sort of really um see much of her right yeah i mean i i knew her first from pictures promotional images things like that like posters and I, i'm sure i'm sure i knew of her as as the horror hostess and everything like that um but I mean, honestly, like there were times like I, at my youth when I probably thought she was sort of interchangeable with pictures of Vampirella. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just I didn't sort of distinguish between the two, even though they are quite different. Um, I just thought of them as like sexy vampire chick with uh, like lots of cleavage. And then I knew of her as sort of being like very sort of flirty and playful with words and and like loading her dialogue with double entendres and stuff like that. But I, I didn't really appreciate it. And then one day I actually watched Elvira, Mistress of the Dark on HBO at an impressionable age. And I was, I tuned in just to ogle her. Um, that's all. I was just, you know, hoping to see something. But I was surprised by how just funny I thought the movie was. And I was like, in, in her in particular. And I found that she was frequently either the smartest person in the room or she at least just knew how to play everyone. Uh, whether she was using her sort of sexuality to get over on someone or playing it straight despite ironic visuals uh, of her costume, no less. Um, it just There always seemed to be something where it's like, you know what, this woman is selling something, but she's really sharp and really clever to be able to, to, to pull this off. Um, so I always liked that about her, that she was... She was you know, she she wasn't being exploited. She was using herself to trick you into thinking she's being exploited by her looks. And I just thought she was really much smarter than that. So I thought it was cool. 
Yeah, no, I agree. She always, um, uh, even like the ads and things like that, she she does always seem to be putting one over on the viewers, right? <laughs> that that you know she knows exactly what she's doing, and you might not think so, but she's really in charge. Yeah. All right, so getting into the comic that we are here for, the cover to this issue is drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Please be his name. Which means we don't even really have to discuss it. We can't just take for granted that it's awesome. But in case you can't see it, even though it will be posted on the website, and there's also this thing called a search engine on your phone. Anyway, the cover shows Elvira, Mistress of the Dark herself, sitting on Santa's lap, making him all kinds of jolly as she reads from a very, very long list of the things that she wants for Christmas. A reindeer and a bag of goodies are in the background, as well as a nervous-looking elf who stares aghast at Elvira's Christmas list. What do you think of this cover? Uh, you know, I think that you saying that Santa uh, is all kinds of jolly makes like perfect sense. First of all, of course, it's drawn by, you know, Garcia Lopez. So she's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I mean, like stunningly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really love is that she's just got her right hand sort of playfully on his cheek, <laughs> you know, which I just think is, you know, I would probably melt uh, if if that was going on. So um, so I just think that this is all sorts of funny because I think that Santa would be like, yeah, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. you know? yeah. I mean, that's just the look on his face. So, Yeah, and the way she her hand is touching his cheek, it's causing him to almost sort of like wink but or squint. One eye is closed. And the one open eye is staring up at her kind of hive of hair, uh, which is not the direction his eye should be looking. Yeah, <laughs> based yeah. On, based on what is right below his chin. Um, but yeah, she's also got like one of her legs is up over his legs. So her legs are kind of split and she's showing a lot of thigh. Um, it, it is definitely a good looking one. I'm not so sure how much she looks like Cassandra Peterson, like how much it, it doesn't necessarily look like a photo reference of the actress, but it still looks really, really good. She's gorgeous looking, as you said. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, this would be one that if I saw on the rack, I would be like, I should probably buy that maybe for maybe for the rack. (laughs) All right, then let's get into the first story in this book. Elvira's Christmas Carol is written by Joey Cavalieri and illustrated by Frank Springer. Albert de Guzman lettered the story and Shelley Elber colored it. After hosting a triple feature of brain-themed monster movies, Elvira crashes on her bed, utterly exhausted. All she wants is to hear some good old rock and roll on the radio before going to sleep. But every station she turns to is playing nothing but classical Christmas carols. She angrily turns off the radio, but the music doesn't stop. She goes to her window to find the ill-fated brothers Cain and Abel in the street singing Christmas carols up to her. Elvira threatens them each with physical violence, which they ought to be plenty used to by now, and then collapses back into her bed. Before long, she is fast asleep, only to be awoken by the ghost of Christmas past, who looks an awful lot like Cain. Cain says they must discover why Elvira hates Christmas so much. She says there's no big mystery there. She's always hated Christmas because of how oppressive it feels. The holiday forces you to pay attention to it, she says, and anybody who doesn't like it is made to feel like a creep, an outsider. Undeterred, Kane whisks Elvira away to the past, her past specifically, and a small schoolhouse where the teacher is teaching the young kids how to make Christmas decorations. 
all except for young Elvira, who wastes all of the green construction paper making bats and other spooky decorations. The teacher kicks Elvira out of school and forbids her from coming back until she learns about Christmas traditions. Of course, Elvira did learn about burning the Yule log, and the last we see of her childhood is little Elvira with matches about to set fire to the school. Then, Cain and Elvira are back in the present. He dumps her back on the bed and hopes the next ghost will have better luck getting to her. Speaking of the next ghost, the able-looking Ghost of Christmas present takes Elvira into the city to show her the meaning of Christmas. But all they see is angry people locked in bumper-to-bumper traffic, honking and cursing at each other, and generally feeling miserable. And this is supposed to be the season of joy, Elvira asks? The ghost tries another option, taking Elvira to Stacy's department store to see the shoppers. Unfortunately, they come upon a riot scene as the dozens of shoppers bludgeon each other with fists and boxes as they try to get the last precious toys for their own children. Defeated, Abel takes Elvira back home, convinced that the third ghost will change her mind about the holiday. Elvira sits in front of the TV to await the final visitor, but all of her favorite monster shows have been replaced by Christmas specials. This infuriates Elvira. This is exactly why she hates Christmas, because you can't escape it. And that is when the Ghost of Christmas future arrives, looking like Destiny from Tales of the Unexpected. Though he doesn't speak, Elvira grocks to his name, and he's taking her to see Christmas Future. What they actually see is a desolate wasteland, the aftermath of future annihilation that steals all life on Earth. Despite the ghost's silence, Elvira once again intuits his meaning. This is not the future, but rather a future. It can be changed so long as people, including Elvira, take seriously messages like goodwill toward men and peace on Earth. Elvira realizes that indulging in Christmas carols and television isn't too high a price to pay for spreading more happiness in the world. And with that, she wakes up alone in her bed. She rushes to the window to see a boy walking by. She tasks him with finding a giant blood-sucking bat as big as herself that dwells in a cave. She offers to pay him to find the bat and deliver it to Cain and Abel for Christmas. The boy runs off, excited to be making some money for the holiday. And Elvira smiles, feeling a renewed interest in the season of giving. All right. What did you think of this one, Ange? Uh, you know, I actually, uh, I, when I first saw that it was going to be her Christmas Carol, I thought maybe this isn't going to be that good. But the more that I read it, uh, specifically for getting ready for this, actually the more that I liked this story. I think that there is um, a bunch of things uh, in particular that I thought worked. One, the fact that the three ghosts are Cain, Abel, and Destiny from the, the horror comics that, you know, DC put out, I think is a nice little touch. Um and I really like the fact that there are all of these sort of classic Christmas Carol tropes that sort of go through. So, like, at one point she says, you know, anybody that likes Christmas should have a steak of holly put through their heart, which is like a line straight from that. Mm-hmm. And even her learning the lesson at the end that, like, oh, this is what might be. Like, maybe we need to learn the, you know, the uh, the lesson of Christmas so that we can move forward. So that's all fun. But, of course, the twists that we see on it that, you know, she's going to burn down the school, that everybody's angry during Christmas time, and even at the the end when it's not like get the goose that's in the in the you know the butcher's uh, window it's like find a bat to sick on them i think it all kind of was like funny in its own twisted sort of a way yeah uh, one thing that i did want to know um is that the 
premonition of the future that she sees, like the fallout of like this total annihilated wasteland, um, may in fact foreshadow the last story in this uh, in this uh, collection, which I'll get to later on this episode. But uh, yeah, I, I was kind of right there with you. I was like, all right, we've heard this story before. Is it going to be as entertaining? Is it going to be as funny? And I think they did a really good job of putting her in that role and giving her a reason that feels credible uh, and understandable for why some people just wouldn't like Christmas. It's just like, oh my god, we get it. I mean, it, like especially if you're somebody who likes other holidays like Halloween and Thanksgiving. It's like, really? You've got your decorations for Christmas already up? It's the first week of October. What's wrong with you? And and I can understand her feeling that it it could be oppressive and it could be sort of an unforgiving season. But yeah, by by the end of it, she's like, you know what? That's not the worst thing in the world. If if that's if you know just buying into this feeling of goodness for the sake of goodness could be the difference in the the extinction of the human race, then that's not too big a price to pay. Yeah, and I think it also does a good job. Um, yeah, the when she is getting ready to get the visit from the third ghost, and she rattles off all of the movies that she just can't escape. They're all of the movies that you know you can't escape at that time, right? So it's like you know, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. It's a Wonderful Life. You know, those are the movies that like I think one channel plays. It's a Wonderful Life like you know twenty four hours straight. You know, mm-hmm. or somebody plays like a Christmas Story twenty four hours straight. So if you're trying to escape Christmas, you just can't. So I agree with you that, you know, it's 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 not that she's like, oh, I hate the message of Christmas. It's just that she feels overwhelmed by it. What did you think of Frank Springer's art in this? I actually thought it was it was good. You know, um, there are times that it doesn't look like she's got a beehive. And, and then there are, you know, maybe on close ups, it looks almost more like just bangs and, and not the big hair. But I think that he does a very good job with her in particular. Mm-hmm. Um but overall, I thought it's kind of like moody and grungy enough to really have that sort of like horror story feel. It's certainly not clean in any way, but I, I thought that the style lent itself to this to this material. Yeah, I, I agree. I really like the way he depicted her uh, as well as like Cain and Abel and everybody. But like there were just certain panels where like he throws a lot into the story, but it doesn't necessarily feel cluttered. It doesn't feel like like on on page four when you're looking at the schoolhouse and like inside the room with all of these kids. And you've got, you know, different layers of different kids at different tables, kind of like they've got like paper and glue and scissors and construction paper, like they're all kind of doing their own little thing. Uh, And then later on, when you get to in the city during the Ghost of Christmas present, like on page six, that first shot when it's just like, like, you know, Times Square on the street and the gridlock and the traffic and drawing all of those cars and everything like that. It's just, it's jam-packed and like the mall scene when you get these riots. They're so crowded with information and with detail and stuff, but it's not something that is going to drown out or make it uh, confusing or hard to view. So I just, I really liked like his art and like subtle ways of what he was able to do with these crowded spots that didn't feel that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I especially liked his little Elvira with sort of like braided pigtails, <laughs> yeah. but still the big beehive. That just, she was too cute for words. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. she was. I liked that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, overall, I mean, it's it's a it's not an original story. Like we said, it's a story that's been done countless times. But I thought that Cavalieri and Springer found an interesting inroad to tell it to make it her story. Uh, to and I think they captured her voice. She felt funny. She felt authentic. Um, and by the end of it, yeah, you're right. Like she's not sending the boy off to buy a goose. He's going to get this giant bat that lives in a cave. Or whatever. He's probably going to get killed on the way. But you know what? If it makes him happy, then it makes Christmas a little bit brighter. 
Yeah, yeah. And and she certainly, like, you know, fires insults at the kid where he's like, boy, you know, like, you're no rocket scientist, right? <laughs> so she still has, like, a little bit of an edge. It's not as if she wakes up and she's, like, sugary sweet the way Scrooge does. She's right. still, she's still like, a little bit barbed, um, but certainly she's learned the lesson. It's a fun story. It's a good way to lead off this story. It's, it's Spoilers for those of you going forward. This is the only one with Elvira in it, um, but it's still a heck of a lot of fun, so... Uh, any final thoughts on this story before we go on? Well, you know, I do have to say that, you know, on the first page, she uh, she makes a pun about the Authority song by John Cougar <laughs> yeah, Mellencamp, yeah, right? And so, you know, like all of the other cultural she- references that she names are all like super classic, like people today would know them. But that one, I wonder if anybody, you know, outside of our age bracket would, would be able to put together that that's what that was about. I was like, you know, this would be where Greg Arujo on Twitter would say, you know, warning, dated cultural reference, right? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean the same that same first page when she's just sprawled out on her bed and everything, like looking exhausted. But uh, um, yeah, it's good. Uh, so this brings me to uh, my first question for this for you: What is your favorite? I mean, it, it could be one, or you could mention others, but your favorite version of A Christmas Carol. Oh, so this is a very good question. Um, you know, part of me wants to say The Muppet Christmas Carol because so many people that I know like love that movie. And so as a result, we often get together as a large group to watch that. Um, but I think I'm probably going to go the George C. Scott version. Yeah, yeah, that one's good. I, I had both of those on my list. I, I did actually make a list. I, I mean, I always like watch, you know, like growing up, I was always – it was either George C. Scott or Alistair Sim. Uh, it was one of those two guys sort of alternating. I also – I really, really like The Muppets Christmas Carol. I thought Michael Caine was great in that one. Um, I I really like Scrooge, the Bill Murray one. Uh, that's always a, a family favorite too. But for me, the one – like even still to this day, I come back to my favorite version is Mickey's Christmas Carol with Mickey Mouse and Scrooge McDuck. Um, that was the one that I saw as a kid. I loved it. I just loved like the the look, the darkness of it, despite it being like a kid's cartoon and and everything. And now um, my son is getting to this age now. He recognizes Mickey and Minnie Mouse. He likes those characters. We watch uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, the new one on Disney Plus. So I think I think he's really going to get a kick out of that. And I'm going to share Mickey's Christmas Carol with him this year. So looking forward to that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, you've already talked a little bit about it, but just the other one, favorite Christmas stories from other comics? I would say the definitely that Supergirl one is sort of super high up on the list. There was one, I wish that I could remember where I read it, but it was a Batman story where somehow he is like trying to stop a crime and the light from the brightest star in the sky like shines through in just such a way that he's able to see the criminal and able to stop them from doing something. And he's like, oh boy, it's sort of like a Christmas miracle. I think that's in that first holiday special one. Is that, um, is that the, the Frank Miller one? I think it's the Frank Miller one, yeah. uh, uh, and I, I've always liked that one as well, even though I'm doing a terrible job of, of recapping it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, any time that you can have, you know, Batman kind of like soften up and believe in something um, I, and tell it in a credible way, I think it's a good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one, um, I was going to say more recent, relatively more recent, I guess it's 10 years old now, maybe more. But it's a uh, from Detective Comics. It was a Paul Dini story called Sleigh Ride, where Robin gets captured and and taken for a ride. He's tied up in the back of a car, driven by the Joker, as the Joker is just terrorizing people on Christmas and going around these these things. And, and Robin is just tied up with the victim, and having to watch this. And 
it's just, I mean, it, it's a Christmas story. It's it's also just a really good Joker story. Maybe the last good Joker story I remember <laughs> seeing or I remember reading. Because um, I know at that point, like, there was, like, every good Joker story's been done. And Paul Dini was like, I probably got one more in me. So that was that was pretty cool. But, I, yeah, I also like the Dead Man story, uh, Old Acquaintance. Um, I'm sure that people can find it in the feed if they look up for me and Rob on Fire and Water. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Ange, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, uh, and happy holidays to you and yours. But before we go, uh, where else can people find you, other than that episode that you did with Rob? Where else can people find you? Um, well, I'm most active in social media on Twitter, um, and my handle there is at DrAnge70. Um, I run a Supergirl uh, site called Comic Box Commentary, where I talk about Supergirl and really all of the Superman comics, um, with occasionally a little bit of Legion thrown in there. Um, and I'm on a little bit of a hiatus with the Legion of Superbloggers, but the hope is uh, once life gets a little bit more steady, um, I'll be able to go back there um, and take over my Friday haunt. Thank you again for being on the show. Folks, as you know, we are just getting started on this episode. We're going to take another break right now, but when we come back, Good King Martin Gray will join me for the second story in this issue. Stick around. Jeff and Merck present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, where we journey through each issue of the most underrated Marvel series of the 80s while drinking beer, analyzing awesome and amazing adolescent adventures, and absorbing alcohol. We got kids with powers, we got villains with attitude. We got superhero guests, like all of them from the Marvel Universe. We have thematically appropriate beer reviews. We have good jokes and bad song parodies. One stop for all your Power Pack pod-pleasing procurements. And we got alliteration. Find Unpacking the Power of Power Pack wherever fine podcasts are played. Costumes on. And we're back, and this time we've got Sir Martin Gray in the house. What's up, Martin? Everything is wonderful, wonderful. How are you this fine December day? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, as if we're recording it in December. I am fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> of course we are, listeners. Um, before we get into this story, uh, I, I asked the same question of uh, Dr. Ange before, and I'll ask for everybody. Did you like or did you have any favorite like sort of holiday themed comics when you were a kid? Or I, actually, I shouldn't limit it to when you were a kid, but as an adult, like, or did you have any other like favorite Christmas or or holiday themed comics? Oh, plenty. I mean, I, I always used to love the DC Christmas with the superheroes type anthologies, mm-hmm. and I mean, I actually wrote a blog post on my blog, Too Dangerous for Girl, at one point about with about five of my favorite Christmas crackers, as I call them, comics. And I mean, three of them. I mean, one is one is the Stone Cold Classic, which will come up again and again on the network. Alan Brennett's Should All Acquaintance Be Forgot from Christmas with the Superheroes, starring mm-hmm. Dead Man, <laughs> Dead Man, and A N Other. If anyone's actually not read it. So I have a that feeling that my previous guest and I have already talked about that one. That's <laughs> funny, that. Yeah, had I known Dr. Andrew was a previous guest, I would probably, yes, have realised that, stupid yeah. boy, Martin. And also, another one, did you ever read Homeless for the Holidays in Adventures of Superman 462? No. That was one they find out that one of the minor supporting characters, Alice, the office girl at the Daily Planet, they discover that she's actually been sleeping in a closet for three years after she became homeless. Oh. And it's just a real heartbreak when, you know, the Planet crew try to do something about it with, you know, with the power of the press and the help of Alice. And it's just, I mean, I've just been just been rereading it. I was just, you know, weeping buckets. Really worth, you know, Dan, Dan Jurgen's type story. And just, just to give you one more, there was a wonderful one which you will have read. Uh, the one in Flash number 73, A Visit from the Man in Red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, mean, I just love all three of those stories. I mean, 
classic clever stories dripping in sentimentality and at least two of them have good seasonal messages and yeah. i just really adored them you know and on the british side of the, of the pond you know we didn't really have special christmas stories in the sense of you know people going for like a big heartbreaking type thing would be you get snow on the logo on the masthead of all our regular comics like the beano the dandy and the victor and things <laughs> um, and you know you'd have people doing you know christmasy things and you know, Walter the Softy and Dennis the Menace being beaten up in the snow and that sort of thing. But that was the American ones that really touched me. All right. Well, uh, getting into the second story from Elvira's Haunted Holidays. The story is, Oh, What Fun to Laugh and Sing a Slaying Song Tonight is written by Michael Fleischer, who has come up on this podcast before. The art is by Jack Sparling. The letters by Augustine Moss and colors by Helen Vesick. On a snowy Christmas Eve, a prison escapee named Onijah Smith runs down a crowded city street with a policeman in hot pursuit. Smith and the cop exchange gunfire. The cop is wounded, but survives and calls in for reinforcements. Smith ducks down an alley, but he knows the heat is drawing down on him. He needs to get out of the city, and that means he needs money. Just then, a drunk dressed as Santa Claus walks down the alley. Smith tries to shake him down for all of the change he has collected for charity, but the drunk says he's too late. The Salvation Army already collected his day's earnings. In a rage, Smith pistol whips the man into unconsciousness. Without money, this bum is useless to Smith. Or maybe not. The next best thing to helping him escape the police crackdown is making sure no more cops recognize him. So Smith hurriedly undresses himself and puts on the Santa Claus outfit. Though the costume hardly fits, Smith is able to slip past a few cops undisturbed. He knows that won't last long, though. He's got to get off the street, so he finds a quiet apartment building, climbs up the fire escape, and sneaks into a home where everybody seems to be asleep. Not everyone, it turns out. While Smith is casing the apartment for things to steal, he is spotted by a little girl named Samantha, who thinks he is Santa. Smith panics, until he realizes the girl is blind and can't really identify him. He tries to placate her by offering her toys, but Samantha reminds him that all she wanted for Christmas was the ability to see again. Smith tells her that takes a special kind of Christmas magic, while all along he's moving about the apartment, taking silver and gold valuables to fence. Finally, Smith tells Samantha he can't perform a miracle to restore her sight and needs to get something from his sleigh parked on the roof. He leaves her feeling heartbroken in her apartment and climbs up the stairs. He gets to the rooftop thinking he is practically home free when the sound of jingle bells draw his attention skyward. Downstairs, Samantha hears a jarring thud from the roof, then the sound of someone coming down her chimney. If she could see, Samantha would know that this stranger dressed as Santa looks a lot more like the traditional version than the last guy in her apartment. This Santa has her very letter, too. He says he doesn't have much time to dawdle, but he asks her to think of a happy, beautiful thoughts, and as she does so, the magic of Christmas restores her sight. She gives Santa a great big hug in thanks, and then he must be going to continue his route. Once on the roof, Santa Claus's inner monologue reveals that his job is much harder than it used to be, what with the ever-increasing global population, as well as the natural effects of age on his body. 
His reflexes aren't as quick, and his vision isn't as sharp as it used to be. In fact, he says if his reindeer-driven sleigh were a car, he would be afraid to drive for fear of hitting something. With that, Santa takes off in his sleigh, never looking back to the roof to see the mangled body of Onija Smith or the sleigh tracks that ran over his crushed chest. So, that was Oh What Fun to Laugh and Sing a Slang Song Tonight. Martin, what did you think of the story? I like it. I mean, I remember reading it at the time. I enjoy, I enjoyed it. Then it's not, it's not a spooky tale, super spooky as you might expect from a comic called Elvira's Haunted Holidays. But it does. It reminds me more than anything of. Did you ever read? There was a few of them reprinted in Justice League in the seventies. The Justice Story shorts from Comics Cavalcade. Maybe. Yeah, there was there was those little little urban adventures, little short stories, but you know, quite heartwarming. And they, they printed one in, in Justice League once and recolored the main guy's hair blonde and said it was the first appearance of Johnny Pearl. But it was, it was, but it was like, you know, it was quite no, just nice little nice little urban story, you know, quite touching. And obviously, this this has a bit of supernatural with Santa, but it's not it's not creepy creepy. But uh, yeah, it's certainly seasonal. And you know, obviously, Fleisch had been writing comics for so long, he really knew how to do an eight page story. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, and I guess probably like the closest thing we get to horror is at the end when we actually see the, the body of our, our protagonist. He's like been run over by Santa, and of course we don't get that at the in the time. But it is kind of the cosmic justice that we get at the end of a lot of like horror stories, like with it is. Like, of course, Fleischer wrote the, the seminal Spectre, run, didn't he? Which mm-hmm. was cutting people up with scissors and what have you that you've been <laughs> chatting about on various podcasts at midnight over the years, oh, and. Oh. Yeah, so the ending, it's not like ironic in the traditional DC mysteries way, but it it, do, it does have that, you know, that nice little cosmic justice ending, you know, for a man who dares to take advantage of a little child's dream. Serves him right. Right, right. And the last panel, when you just see, you, you hear Santa saying, ho, 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 in the distance as he's flying over the moon, but it's just this close-up shot of Smith lying prone on the roof, and you just see the tracks just running over, like, his chest and his legs, and, like, they're just, like, this coloring shading, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, he just got run over, like, that was the sort of sad, ignominious death of this, like, horrible man to just be crushed by the sleigh, and Santa doesn't even realize what he did, it's just because Santa's, like, an old man driver who can't see the road. It's funny, yeah, I mean, it's ironic that he can cure Samantha's eyesight, but he can't help his own eyesight. Right, right, but, yeah. But, yeah, well, when, I, when I did see that panel again after all these years, it reminded me of something that appeared a couple of years later, which you'll be, you'll be able to conjure up in your mind immediately, is the covered Animal Man number five, the Coyote Gospel. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it earlier, but, yeah, that, that, that Animal Man cover with him laying prone there with the, the tracks over him. Yeah, that's brilliant. No, it is. It's just like, nice work from Jack Sparling. I mean, obviously, you know, I've only really come across him in odd DC mystery shorts and nineteen, you know, nineteen sixties, late nineteen sixties, post Gil Kane Green Lantern, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he's got you know just very clear and moody style, but he's you know, you know top top storyteller. And I mean, the only the only time which is is art doesn't sort of you know ring true with the whole piece is when he's he's drawing the drawing the little girl who's you know African American. I think he's trying so hard to to make her a nice you know a realistic nice looking girl. She looks you know out of kilter with the rest of the art. Which is a cute little one, certainly. Yeah, especially because Smith and and the name, I don't know, even know if I said it right, Onija Smith, Onija Smith, I have no idea where Fleischer came up with that name. I've never heard that anywhere else, so I don't know how I've, it's pronounced. I have looked it up, but apparently it means gift of God. And you know, if he, he's a gift, you'd, you'd return him to the shop, honestly. What a yeah. nightmare. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, you're right. But like his his face, the way Sparling draws him, there's such character in this face. Like even from like the first panels when he's like beating up the the store Santa, to when he actually goes into the apartment when the girl fi- when Samantha finds him and she's tugging at him while he's got the beard on. There is like such character and such such animation in this face that I really really dig it. And you're right, like everything else about this story is kind of gritty and kind of dark, but like Samantha is just this like pristine beautiful little girl. And yeah, it really is sort of like a this bright light. And actually, Santa Claus is too. Like he he's kind of like the other one who just has like this very sort of rounded and, and despite his age a very st- still sort of like cherubic quality he is he, he looks lovely a little little samantha you know it's quite nice that you do, you know you don't really get a good look at it until she steps out of the shadows and i mean if that was on tv that would be just a super little moment mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and you mentioned jack sperling like, i i know i've come across him because he did a ton of stuff for house of secrets and, and unexpected and a lot of these horror stuff so i'm sure just like i've seen his stuff but it's not like a name i necessarily associate with he did a ton of stuff for dc mostly he was mostly dc but also like warren and a few other things only did a few things for marvel sort of towards the end of his career um but i actually looked up on mike's amazing world this is the third to last credit he got Wow. And he actually, he would have been about 70 when this came out. And then he died about 10 years later. So I, I, I imagine, I mean, like, for him to still be putting out, like, we're, I, and possibly this was an inventory story that they sat on for, for a while or something like that. But it, I mean, if it was done for this book specifically when this came out, he would have been about 70 years old when he did this. So. Oh, she's he's done well, and, and certainly, I mean, it, uh, yeah, it looks great. It's it's you know, it's my joint first favorite story of the fall issue, easily. Yeah, it's just really, really good, really outstanding, and and there's like yeah, this subplot like with like the detectives and everything, like with you know closing down like the police barricade, and he's got like the hat and like the trench coat and everything. I think like with a little bit of modifications, you could have convinced yourself that that was Detective or Lieutenant Jim Corrigan, <laughs> like from Fleischer's uh, Spectre shorts. Easily, and I love that Sparling took the trouble to put in those little flaps on the back of the cops' hats to keep the snow off the back of their yeah. necks. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, obviously, you know, I've only been to New York a couple of times, but to me, it, it looks can, like a convincing advocation of New York, the scene in the likes of, you know, Merkel on 34th Street and all those Hallmark Christmas movies filmed in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one's not, not filmed there, yeah. Um, on page three, when Smith is put, the last panel when Smith is putting on the the Santa Claus costume that he's taking off of the drunk uh, Salvation Army Santa, there the jacket looks pretty big. Like the sleeves are fine, everything it seems like fit him well. And then the next panel of the top of page four when he's walking down, the sleeves are way too short. <laughs> it's like uh, and the pants too. It's like obviously this costume doesn't really fit him. But when he's first putting it on, like the jacket seems a lot bigger than the first panel. Yeah, it's the magic of Christmas, sir. <laughs> yeah, of course. But I, I also like that you know, all, all, you know, you've got your three main characters in the story. You know, the you know the bad Santa, Samantha, and the real Santa. But all of them, you know, Fleischer t- again takes the trouble to give them all a little, a little bit of proper characterisation, so you mm-hmm. get dragged into the story a little more than if they were just cardboard cutouts. You know, colour forms going through the motions. Even you know, Santa, you know, Santa's thinking about how he's fifteen hundred year old, and you know, Samantha wants to see again, and this guy just wants to escape, but he's vicious. And I do also like very much the fact that. There's no attempt made to sort of give this guy sort of a really, really good side. You know, he sort of, he has that little moment where he chokes up a little when he realises Samantha's blind, but he still carries on ripping her off. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. 
yeah, she doesn't like change. It's not like a Grinch story where his heart grew three sizes that day and he like has this whole like redemption arc or something. No, it's nothing like that. He placates her. He also like doesn't uh, disabuse her of the notion because he doesn't want to tip her off. You know, he needs to kind of approach this subtly so he can get away with this crime, with it robbing her and everything. But yeah, yeah, and then like when we do see Santa, you're right. Like he, Fleischer gives Santa Claus a kind of humanity by talking about how old he is and how you know he's really kind of slowing down. It's harder for him to do the job, but it doesn't make him kind of a bumbling comic character, like comedic character, until the last bit when you kind of do get the sense that oh yeah, he just ran over somebody because he couldn't see where he was going. That's yeah, or Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer with right. his super supervision just decided I'm not having a treasury this year. I'll have some fun. Splat. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I think my favourite panel in the story is the penultimate panel just before the Coyote Gospel Nox panel. <laughs> it's, you know, Santa flying through the air in silhouette. It's obviously really, really traditional, and it did remind me of one of the Rudolph Treasure Editions covers. But it's just lovely the way Casino Spawning does a simple, simple silhouette. The covers having Vesic does that little splash of red on the sleigh seat, and they've got all the snow around it. It's just lovely, really nice. Yeah, yeah, and there's sort of like a trailing pink after effect coming off of the sleigh, too. That's really nice. Kind of accents it. Yeah, it's a fun story. I really like it. I'm glad that you wanted to cover this one with me. No, thanks very much. It's been a lovely, lovely, lovely little privilege to reread and have a think about it. Any other uh, any other notes before we go? I think that's pretty much it on that on the actual sort on the story itself. No, it's just, it's just really enjoyable. All right, then before I do let you go, um, do you remember like a favorite Christmas gift when you were a kid? Ooh, a favorite Christmas gift when I was a kid. I always liked when I was a very, very little kid. I was like when you got, a, I don't know whether you have them in the US, compend, or Canada even, US and Canada, uh, compendiums of game, where you get lots of games in one box. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they were just fun, you know, you know like, you know, all the little, little daft little games like Snakes and Ladders, or what's Snakes and Ladders called in America? Uh, Shoots and Ladders. That's, yeah, yeah. You get all of those in one box, but I mean, no, I mean, I think my favorite, my favorite sort of memory from that time isn't so much of actually sort of getting the present. It was just sort of, you know, one one Christmas Eve when I was about eight or nine, just early, you know, early morning Christmas Eve, watching Steve Austin versus Bigfoot on the Six Million Dollar Man, while my mother was in the kitchen nearby bake, baking, you know, baking. It was just absolutely, I just think of that and it just takes me right back to happy, happy family Christmases, and they always were happy, you know, lovely, lovely times. Uh, favorite Christmas movie. Yeah. It's real, real cliche, but I mean, I, I look, I've got so many. I mean, I am the guy who has the, the Hallmark Christmas Channel or what, what passes for it here on since September, and I'm constantly watching those TV movies with sort of you know big city business women getting stranded in a small town and falling <laughs> for widow widow dads with orphans and finding their heart growing sizes. I think I've seen I think I've seen nine different versions of that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I actually wrote, I actually wrote an article on, on that for this, on those things for the Scotsman newspaper that I work for online. If anyone's really bored. But uh, no, Chris, favorite Christmas film. It's real cliche, but it's because it's so lovely and wonderful. Would probably be it's a wonderful life. When I start crying, the minute that the pharmacist, Mister mm. Gower, slaps George on the ear, and I just keep crying from then on. But if, uh, the anti-Christmas film. Have you ever seen one called? It's a Disney film. One Magic Christmas with Mary Steenburgen. Uh, one magic? No, I don't think so. Well, the cover is you know, sort of happy Santa Claus, happy Mary Steenburgen, happy smiling. Elizabeth Harnwell, who went on to be in CSI when she was old. But it's a really happy film. And you, you, you start watching the film, uh, within, within, within 20 minutes, of, you know, the family's about to get thrown out, the father's been sort of knocked down dead by a car. It's just, it's just so miserable. And even at the end, when, you know, when it seems like the, the family's, you know, everything's okay again, and 
spoiler, Dad's come, Dad's brought back to life by Santa. If you think about it, they're still going to get thrown out of the house by Christmas. It's just, just avoid that one. Okay, all right, I will avoid that one. Huh? Um, I do like Mary Steenburgen though, and um, as a bit of cross promotion, she is married to Ted Danson, who plays Sam Malone on Cheers, which is another show that I do on this network. And and, and yeah, incidentally, as I say, Elizabeth Harnois, who or Harnois, I don't know, the little blonde girl in the film, who as I say, grew up to be in one of the CSIs about 20, 20 years later. She was acting with Ted Danson in CSI. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but can I give can I give you just one more Christmas film to watch out for if you've never seen it? Absolutely. It's uh, from the Netherlands, a Dutch film from about 2010 or something called Sint, S-I-N-T, a.k.a. Sint. You can, you can find it, I think, anyway, it's, I think it's subtitled, but it's still very watchable. And it's about it's Saint, the Saint in question is Saint Nick. And it's, it's set in Amsterdam, I think. And you're watching it, and it's about, you know, it's probably a nice companion piece. This story is about Saint Nicholas, who is going, he's a rooftop skimming serial killer. It's a version of the Saint who's really dark. He's actually Saint Nick. But he kidnaps and murders children when there's a full moon on December the 5th. And it's just a wonderful, modern, different kind of Christmas movie. Interesting. Sint. Okay, I'll see. I'll see about that one. <laughs> yeah, get back to me, sir. <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you very much for being on the show. Where else can people find you if they want to hear or read more from you? Oh, as I say, I do, I do a wee blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, which I don't do enough on, but try and do a few reviews every week. And as I say, if anybody wants to see my favourite Christmas stories, there's a post called Christmas Crackers from 2015. But I'm just around and about on Twitter as at March Gray, and I pop up pop up in the comments a lot on the Fire and Water Network posts. But I have a, a small, small internet footprint. Oh, no. Getting bigger all the time. <laughs> Thank you. All right, listeners. Uh, well, we're only halfway through this special episode of Midnight. So for now, we're going to take another promo break, but I will be back on the other side with another guest and another tale of Christmas terror. Don't go away. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. All right, folks, I am back, and I am joined by a guest who loves Christmas so much that he used to podcast about it every single day in the month of December. Please welcome Mr. Kyle Benning. What's up, Kyle? Hey, thanks for having me. It has been a long time since we have podcasted about comics. Yes, it has been. Too long. <laughs> um, hey, has anything interesting been going on in your life in the meantime? Uh, yeah, just a little bit. I had uh, twin girls about two years ago. And that has been a roller coaster. Uh, one of them has had uh, some health issues that hopefully are behind us now. And then I've been all over the, the globe for work as well, so it's been a, a hectic thing to uh, to balance. But uh, things are settling down here, and that's... Uh, that's good to hear. I well, hope Much better. <laughs> yeah. I hope your daughter is doing really well, and I hope you guys have a good Christmas. I, I remember, you know, when my son Reese was born, and, you know, after two months he had to have surgery on his skull. 
and I remember basically thinking, I was like, oh my god, nobody has ever had a, you know, a, a young child like as problematic as this. This is so bad. And then uh, you were like, you know, hold my beer. So. Yeah. <laughs> a funny uh, story about that. Actually, the day uh, Reese was born will always be special for me because that was actually the day we found out we were having twins. Because a friend of mine, the day that his kid was born was the day we found out we were having a son. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> So, as I as I mentioned in your intro, you used to podcast about Christmas comics every day leading up to Christmas. So I have to ask you, you know, with that experience, what is your favorite Christmas comic or Christmas story in a comic? That is really hard. Um, you know, I also have a fondness for Golden Age comics. So when those two kind of met, uh, a lot of times you had like a almost a uh, Norman uh, Rockwell esque uh, cover uh, mm-hmm. on some of those two. So. I think a lot of my favorites are skewed towards the the golden age material. So uh, some that kind of jump out. Uh, there's the the Superman like Christmas Town USA one. I really like that one. Um, there's the uh, Superman Christmas special that was like a one shot that was like available at uh, certain uh, malls. I, I want to say in, like 1941, 1942. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some great Captain Marvel ones. I, I have a real fondness for the Christmas story in Captain Marvel number 42, partly because I actually own that physical issue and that is the oldest comic in my collection. Ah, wow, nice. Um, and then there's a great Superboy one uh, that was in, uh, got a, would have been Adventure Comics, I think, uh, at that point. I want to say from like 1948, 1949. It has a Christmas cover on it. Uh, I can picture it. He's kind of in the air with it's dark out and uh, Santa's behind him. Um, that was actually uh, in a, there was like an Adventures of Superboy hardcover that came out a couple of years ago. And that story is reprinted in that. And that, that one is one of my favorites. Uh, cool. there's, a, there's a great uh, Enemy Ace one as well. You know, they did the the Christmas with the superheroes. They they did two issues in the late eighties. I want to say that one was written and drawn by John Byrne. That's a really great one. Too. I remember that one. Yeah. Um, all right, for the story that we are covering, the third story. This story is Oh Christmas Tree. It is written by Barbara Randall, penciled by Stephen DeStefano, inked by Craig Boldman, lettered by Bob Lappin, and colored by Shelley Elber. A wealthy couple named Faye and Steve move into their big new house in the suburbs, shoving their way past kids singing Christmas carols and literally kicking a cat to get out of their way. Faye demands they get the perfect Christmas tree to go with their new house, but it can't be too artificial, too dead, or too regimental. She wants a wild, thriving, living tree. So Steve drives her out to a wilderness preserve, and there Faye finds a magnificent fir. Conservation laws be damned, these are rich white people we're talking about. So Steve Steve cuts it down with a chainsaw, and they bring it back to their house. On Christmas Eve, the couple hosts a party for their neighbors to show off the tree, now decorated with ornaments and topped with a gaudy star. That night, after everyone has gone to bed, the tree begins to move. It leans forward, causing the star to topple off and crash to the floor. Then the tree shakes all of the ornaments off. Then the tree's branches and roots grow and grow and grow. Faye wakes up to the tree branches bursting through the door and the walls of her bedroom. She screams and runs down the hall, finding Steve caught by the tree's sinister roots and covered in pine needles. He tells her to save herself and run, which she does, but the door is blocked by branches. Faye drops to her knees and curses the tree before it swallows her alive. As the sun rises on Christmas morning, the neighbors gather around to see the massive tree towering over the rubble that used to be Stephen Faye's house. 
they are utterly unconcerned about the fate of the young couple that none of them really can stand, and more curious about what to do with such a big tree. After debating where it should go, they finally donate it to the White House, where it presides in the East Lawn in full decoration over a festive Christmas concert. Alright, so Kyle, what did you think about the story? This was hilarious. <laughs> it was very enjoyable. It was one of those that it's, uh, as soon as I finished it, I, I flipped back through and, and read it a second time. It's much more enjoyable the second time around when you know that, uh, I mean, <laughs> you have the feeling, right? It's it's kind of a, a horror-tinged comic that mm-hmm. when these scumbags are being sleazy, that karma is going to get them in the end. But then when you know when that karma is, going back and rereading it and just kind of savoring in their, their sleaziness, knowing what's coming to them, it's, it's more enjoyable the second time around. It's almost like the rich people just think rules don't apply to them. I, I don't know where they would get a crazy concept like <laughs> I, that I, yeah, for this story. but And it certainly <laughs> doesn't know. feel like it's relevant today. Not at all. No, not at all. No. <laughs> Uh, I really love uh, De Stefano's art in this. Mm-hmm. It's super cartoony and fluid. Uh, has a very experimental kind of great layout there where a lot of times there's stuff going on in the background with floating panels uh, in front and uh, has like a very kind of Sunday morning newspaper funnies feel to it mm-hmm. or reminds me a lot of like the Sunday morning comics that were in the paper when we were kids. Um, and so it definitely kind of captures that uh, nostalgia feel of like an animated Christmas special, like the Garfield Christmas special or the Peanuts yep. Christmas special. Just the, the art has that same aesthetic there. So it was a lot of fun and yeah. uh, I, I, I couldn't help uh, I want to say what Christmas vacation came out in 89, right? And this was 86, but, uh, there's multiple, uh, parts in the story that, uh, <laughs> definitely remind me of Christmas vacation, right? The right out in the middle of nowhere, uh, to, to get the tree. I guess it's lucky that, uh, he had a chainsaw so he didn't have to rip it out by the root ball, but, uh, you know, the, cutting the strings uh, when Clark cuts the strings on him, busts all the windows out in their house. And this happens here. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, really enjoyable. Yeah, it is. Um, Stephen DeStefano, his, his art is fantastic in this. And it it does have a very sort of cartoonish Saturday morning cartoon type of style uh, or, or comic strip style. But almost sort of in spite of that, the events of this story are pretty grisly and horrific. Yes, they are. <laughs> the way it kind of climaxes. And I actually thought about I, I compared it to the other stories that uh, we've gone through, and we've got one more after this. But of the four stories in this book, they range from kind of, you know, silly. There's a there's a Christmas Carol pastiche in here with Elvira. And then there's kind of a bleak end-of-the-world story later on. But this one was the one that felt the most like an actual horror story. If the tone of the art had been a little bit different, this type of story would have fit in with an EC horror mag, like a Tales from the Crypt or something like that. Uh, it it kind of has that trope of you've got this horrible couple that's are just t- utterly nasty, and they meet a violent super natural kind of end you know they they are so i i think barbara randall or barbara kiesel as she was like her script is just it's really tight it's really effective it hits all of those notes like you said the you know these, these people are getting what they want but yeah like the the art kind of livens it up for this type of story but i could have seen this being you know like a much more of um much more of a violent kind of old school you know pre-code type of horror thing Oh, absolutely. And you definitely nailed it with like the EC Tales of the Crypt thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we even her plot is extremely tight and then we get the you know, the very 
nice piece of foreshadowing. I mean, one, the, the title of the story is Oh Christmas Tree, but that's actually what the carolers are singing, you know, right, when this right. horrible uh, couple pulls up, <laughs> kind of kicks them and pushes them out of the way. So it's perfectly captures that. It's it's like a throwing the Garfield Christmas special in with an EC horror thing and hitting the blend button, and the, yeah. the product is awesome. Yeah, yeah, fate literally. I, I said it. She literally kicks a cat and like kicks it like backwards, like like she's like stepping over to her door and like kicks it back and it like flies up into its owner's hands. And yeah, of course, like she's like you know it needs to be the perfect tree. She's like, but she's like complaining about the three trees. It's too fake. I want a real one. And then like they go to another lot. They're too dead. I want a real one. They're too regimented. I want a wild one and everything. So they have to go to this wilderness preserve to to get it. And it's oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, what, what it needed, like in Christmas Carol, it needed a wild animal, a woodland creature to be in the <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what I wondered, is there going to be uh, some, you know, like bloodthirsty wolverine or something that was in this thing that was going to spring out of it and get him? So yeah. It was the actual tree itself coming to life and uh, having its revenge just was better. It was yeah. it was awesome. I, I love the detail of the, the party guests at their Christmas Eve party that Stefano just puts in, like, the nonverbal body language that, you know, Faye is completely drunk and she's like just going on, and and Steve is you know just like kind of like talking about how everything is great, and just all of the other neighbors are just like we do not want to be here. <laughs> it's like yeah. how how soon can we leave? And just completely unimpressed, unhappy with these people. Yeah, it's a fun story. It's really good. It's, it's surprisingly violent, but it ends you know like with this with the tree you know in front of the White House, and and we actually get like a little Christmas poem by the end of it. That sort of reca- I, I actually thought about using this as the recap, but. Um, it just goes, a couple of days before Christmas Eve, a woman named Faye and a man named Steve began to prepare for the holidays, but their selfish natures and evil ways got in the way of the Christmas giving, and now they're no longer among the living. So before this happens to you or me, remember, be kind to your Christmas tree. Uh, all right, all right, very cool. So uh, before we get going, Kyle, uh, I do have to just ask you two other questions. As a father of three now, uh, what is your favorite or your most proud Christmas present that you have gotten for your kids? Ooh, that's a tough one. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would be uh, lying a little bit if, like, from a, a toy buying standpoint, <laughs> if I didn't kind of pad Blaze's presents with stuff that. I would like like <laughs> Transformers. sweet Transformers. Turtles, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, man, I don't know. The last couple of years for Blaze, we always try to do more educational stuff, and we mm-hmm. let grandparents do all the the toy stuff. Um, I guess one year we did get him like a uh, uh, Power Wheels four wheeler. Nice. Um, he loves that thing. He drives that all over our place. So uh, that's a pretty good one, I, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I for for his birthday, I absolutely got Risa the retro Optimus Prime figure. It was like, and and he didn't get it. Like he loved it when it's a truck, and then when I tried to show him to transform, he was like, no, no, no. He like freaked out. He didn't. He didn't want the robot. He kept like making me turn it back into a truck. No, and that's how Blaze is. He he loves the the alternate modes instead. Mm-hmm. I always want to transform into robots and stuff and now he just wants them all in the vehicles through the the dinosaur modes he, he loves so you know yep. all the, the dino bots and they they recently redid those uh so uh, we got all those probably two christmases ago nice yeah he's he's the same so um favorite christmas movie christmas vacation has got to be up there uh for sure as like the full-on uh favorite movie uh for animated short it's got to be a three-way tie between 
Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, Garfield Christmas, and then a couple of years ago there was uh, How Murray Saved Christmas. Have you watched that? I know of it, but I haven't watched it. Oh, it is amazing. You know, it was an hour-long Christmas special with commercials, so it's, you know, whatever, 43 minutes. Mm-hmm. It rhymes the entire time. Whew. Murray is this old uh, sandwich-making uh, curmudgeon, a former, well, I don't want to give away what he used to be and why he's all curmud- curmudgeon-y, but uh, uh, Jerry Stiller is his voice. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. There's a couple other, like, uh, Seinfeld references and nods and uh, characters that are among the cast there, and it is it is a blast. It's hilarious. We actually uh, rewatched that uh, couple nights ago already and laughed our ass off uh, again through it so <laughs> that's a good one check it out if uh, you don't uh, if you haven't before if you have like sling tv like we do yep. it's on demand on uh, amc if you go to their channel and down below their on demand stuff they already have that on there so definitely recommend that one cool um on amazon video they have a, a series uh if you give a mouse a cookie it's based on a, a book series um it yep. is really, really cute. My, my son loves it. That was like it was like the first cartoon that he got into that actually has like a narrative and characters, uh, and he was able to follow and he loved it. And, and thank God he did that just at the right time because I, I was getting so sick of just him watching just like YouTube videos of dump trucks and like construction. <laughs> I was like, okay, you got to watch something with a plot, otherwise I'm going to go nuts. Um, so he got into this cartoon. It is really, really cool, really funny. If you give a mouse a cookie, but there's a Christmas special in there. Uh, yep, if you give we watched that one. That one is good. Yeah, if you give a mouse a Christmas cookie, which I, I love that. That's really, really fun. So, All right, Kyle, thank you very much for coming back to the world of podcasting to make this appearance. Uh, we missed you a whole lot. Um, any chance we'll hear you from you again in the future? Yes, this should be uh, here shortly. Um, who knows? Maybe by the time this is up, I will have uh, started to feed up and just put some of my old episodes up um, to occupy uh, space uh, until I get some new material out there. But hopefully uh, new episodes will be coming in uh, January of 2020 sometime. Very, very cool. Cool. Looking forward to that. Okay, folks, we're going to take another break right now, but when we return, I will have Pat Sampson with me to talk about the final story in this issue, so stick around. Hey, Jared, I have a question. What's up? Well, I've been a part of the Longbox Crusade for about a year and a half now. Yeah? No, that's not a question, man. I know, I'm getting to it. That was called Build Up. Like I was saying, I've been with the Longbox Crusade, and I have gone out and represented the show faithfully. That's still not a question. I'm still building up. I was wondering, could I be a part of the official promo? There's this great promo for the podcast that airs across podcast land, and it has Pat Sampson, the founder of the show, you, the art cell artist, and your brother Jason, a.k.a. Weasel Skull. But it doesn't have me, Delvin Williams. The Dark Web! Could you ask the guys if they would let me be a part of the promotion, since you were the one who invited me onto the show? Well, not to be a Mr. Quick to correct, but that was at least two questions. Still, I guess I'll ask. Let me go talk to the guys, and you stay here. Okay, great. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up, Jared? What's up, Jared? I have a question. Delvin's been with us for like a year and a half. That's not a question. Uh, yeah, I know. It's called Build Up. Hey, can we finally include him on the promo? It's the least we can do. He doesn't know that we're getting paid yet. And he never will. I mean, do we need him? After all, we already have the Longbox Crusade. And I provide awesome synopsis and insight on Crusader Chronicles. And I host Saturday Matinee Theater and also provide these nuts jokes. Hey, I do that. Me too. So we're fine as it is. What does Delvin do? We should just let him go. 
Wait, he hosts Transformers Chronicles. You should know that, Pat. You're on that show. So what do you say? Can we keep him? <sighs> Fine. Let's do it. Let's do it live. We could have done this with him in the room. It would have made more sense. Why is he outside? I think we were doing a bit. Okay, let's do this. The Longbox Crusade Podcast Network is the place to be if you like deep dives into comics of yesteryear with the Longbox Crusade. Chronological reading journals with Crusader Chronicles. Indexing forgotten TV shows, films, and serials with Saturday Matinee Theater. Pitting two randomly selected action films against one another. An action film face-off. Cataloging the Marvel run of the Transformers comic with Transformers Chronicles. And whatever else the demented minds of Pat, Jared, Jason, and Delvin can come up with. If that sounds like it might be for you, be sure to subscribe to The Longbox Crusade on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much all reputable podcast feeds. Or check us out directly at www.longboxcrusade.com, where we continue our quest to... And we're back for our final story in this holiday special. My guest this time is the founder of the Longbox Crusade podcast and its island of misfit hosts and shows. I am talking about the man himself, DJ Christados. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Pat Sampson. How are you, Pat? I'm doing well, Ryan. Feliz uh, Navidad to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, one of my favorite features that you guys do on the Longbox Crusade is every December you do the 12 Days of Crusade Mess, yeah. where one of your hosts or a guest brings a book and tries to pitch the rest of you guys on the series. Um, <laughs> but you also tie it in with Christmas music and seasonal anecdotes. And I love that part about the show. And I, I get the feeling that Christmas is a pretty important time for you and the guys. Am I right in that? Is that the case? And kind of what does Christmas mean to you or what did it mean to you growing up? Oh, well, Christmas did mean a lot to at least me. I know I'm sure with the other guys, too, it does mean something uh, as well, too. I think when we first started doing Crusade Miss, it was just something where we wanted to do and have some fun doing. We're like, well, let's do like 12 days, you know, of doing comics and just having fun together and uh you know three years later we're on to uh you know christmas volume number three with crusade was coming out so uh just a fun time uh personally for me uh always remember living in wisconsin always snow Mm -hmm. uh, sledding time off from school uh waiting to get my you know my big gi joe presents that i would get um i I think one year i got the raven the night raven oh man that was a nice toy um so it's just something special i'm a big christmas music guy as well too so that's where the music comes in part of it on uh, crusademus is tying it into a musical song that everybody it's got to love some sort of a Christmas song out there. So you, you got something you like. So you all, it's always your go-to Christmas song uh, when the season comes around. So I don't know. Some people like to start Christmas early. Uh, I don't mind it sometimes, you know, hearing a little Christmas music, you know, right after Thanksgiving or even that day of Thanksgiving. My family were playing Christmas music. Yeah. So. I've said it before, but I sort of share those just, you know, growing up in Illinois just a little bit, a little bit to the mm-hmm. south of you, but not much. And uh, definitely getting some of those G.I. Joe presents was the big, uh, the big thing. I think the year that the Night Raven came out, I didn't have that one, but I got the stun. I got the land vehicle for the Cobra. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool, too. Yeah. Yeah, I was, that really surprised me that my parents got me that. So I was like, that was probably my big present that year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, then, for the final story in Elvira's Haunted Holidays, the story is called Twas the Night Before Xmas, uh, and the writer-slash-artist on this one is Dave Manick. Uh, and this one is kind of told... <laughs> the 
the pictures sort of illustrate what, what is happening with the captions, and the captions are told in a kind of uh, rhyming sort of song almost. Um, so I figure I'm just going to kind of read through this, and instead of doing a summary, I, I figure the language of this is too important. So I'm just going to I'm going to read through this. So. Twas the night before Xmas, and all through the world, no army was marching, no flag was unfurled. The stockpiles had all been launched without care, a few mushroom clouds still hung in the air. There were no more soldiers, living or wooden, no more Ferraris, no more Dwight Gooden. All of the creatures that once seemed ubiquitous had been eradicated into something quite liquidous. The planet indeed had been fried to a cinder, and now all lay hushed under nuclear winter. Then, in the ionosphere, arose such a clatter, the unmistakable din of controlled antimatter, and drifting as light as a leaf in the lull came alien wings and an alien hull, and out of the alien ship, no surprise, come alien beings with alien eyes. They looked all around, they looked far and near, then stopped to shed an alien tear. Our sensors, it seems, show no sign of life. All must have died in the nuclear strife. Since there's no one to rescue and radiation is high, we'd best get inside and flee through the sky. In a nano-twinkling of alien toes, the alien ship toward the stratosphere rose. Orbiting over the Earth's shrouded pole, the ship's remote sensors locked on a black hole. When suddenly on the scopes came a blip, which naturally alarmed the alien ship. What can it be? Perhaps it's a missile, lofting through the sky like the down from a thistle. Did automatic systems below somehow see them, responding with one final ICBM? Though it is violence, all spacemen abhor, there's always the danger of a stray meteor. So every vehicle's standard equipped with a protonic cannon before it is shipped. By now you have guessed what caused the alarm. They'd mistaken old Santa for a nuclear bomb. Since through vacuum of space you'll never hear noise, they couldn't detect St. Nick's loud ahoys. Take me along to your alien worlds. Take me where I can find good boys and girls. Santa, you see, had become quite distraught. No wonder his rhyming was not what it ought. On argon, on krypton, on neon and crystal, a purple ray shot from that oversized pistol. Zap! And the rarefied atmosphere filled with the sweet, pungent odor of cooked reindeer meat. The ship then warped out with nary a look, saying happy Xmas to all. Now, let's book. And if you were able to follow along with that uh, story, which hopefully you did, because I, th- I think the language really kind of conveys it, um, yeah. we open up with just a couple of pages of the planet Earth after nuclear devastation. Um, snow has covered the ground, but it is not a time of seasonal joy. We see the signs of, you know, like bones of animals. We see broken presents, uh, a child's baseball cap just buried. Uh, the world has basically ended. All life on Earth is, has been wiped out. And these aliens show up to just kind of like check and inspect if there's anybody that they can rescue. But nope, it's too late. There's no one alive, so they get out of here. 
and as they're taking off, Santa Claus comes flying out uh, with his reindeer, trying to basically hitch a ride. He's like, hey, this, this planet is doomed. Take me with you so I can find... And the aliens mistake what they think what they think is possibly a rogue ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. So they blow Santa and the reindeer into oblivion and then leave. Pat, what did you think of the story? Oh, well, you know, it, that ending was something I wasn't expecting. <laughs> um, and then I looked at the cover of where this is from. I'm like, oh, okay, this makes sense now. <laughs> And when you know when you sent it to me, I wasn't sure. I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of interesting story. Uh, but what it reminds me of is the song. As we go to Christmas songs, reminds me of the weird Weird L song, Christmas at Ground Zero. I'm not familiar with that. You never heard Christmas at Ground Zero? It's a Weird L saying singing about what would happen when with a nuclear bomb hit, being at Ground Zero. Huh? Yeah, definitely go uh, listen to that song. It's it's well, it's Weird L. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's just talking about uh, you know a nuclear winter, having uh, fun around the uh, the bombs and all that. Uh, yeah, and it, yeah, it, it's it's not necessarily a scary story, but it's just sort of like mm-hmm. horrific in the sense that it's imagining this end of the world scenario where uh, all life has been extinguished and no no other power can help us. Even Santa is trying to get out yeah. of here. <laughs> and and he's just like caught up just like through like mistaken chance he they kill Santa at the end of this, um so it's it's not scary but it is it's depressing and it's it's mm-hmm. haunting like the imagery the idea that this could be our future if we don't change our ways I mean it is yeah. sort of like in a in a sense a, a haunting you know ghost story much like Scrooge and they take the take on the rhyming or not. Uh, that from the Twas the Night Before Christmas. Right, right, yeah. And so, you know, as you read it, I, you know, I was kind of going in and out of that story a little bit, and so I like how that was kind of mirrored here in this story, yeah. which made it even worse as you're thinking of the Christmas, you know, that Christmas story, it's all joy, and all of a sudden you're going, oh, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wasteland, and Santa gets zapped. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, the the art on this is very stylized. It's very cool. The the artist or the writer and artist on this, Dave Manick. I, I looked him up. He started out on Plop, which was one of DC's horror okay, yeah. but more humorous magazines um, that that tended to have more horror, but kind of like sort of like shocking things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I can really see this this story fitting in right right with that because yeah, it is it yeah. is a dark comedy. It's very bleak, and that's mm-hmm. like it's like the whole like the the turns of phrases and everything. Um, after he after he worked there, he went over to Marvel and worked primarily as a writer. Uh, and he did a ton of their licensed properties that were like more kid stuff. He did Ewoks, he did droids, oh. the, the Star Wars things. Oh, uh. He did Heathcliff, um, and then he actually he did do penciling again on the Alf book when they licensed the Alf <laughs> TV show character. So um, yeah, I can see that style in this a little yeah, bit now. Me too, yeah, me too. I can definitely see more of that. Um, yeah, very cool. I, I just found it interesting that he, a guy known pri- for probably more so for doing a lot of kids' work, would get a book in this like horror <laughs> thing. But it's it's a Christmas thing, so it kind of works. You know? It fits. It it fits as you're trying to you know it's telling that kind of a sweet story, mm-hmm. and then turns into that end. Um, one thing I liked about this as well too is the panel layouts. So yeah. 
it's you know it's a either you got a two panel you got a four panel or you got i think there's two pages of one big splash panel mm-hmm. so i really like that and it helped you know move the story along were there particular panels or pages that you liked i mean it's so it's so brief and it's so much mm-hmm. kind of like driven by this the art is very stylish it, it, it's not something that has like a lot of like detail that you get but I mean that that second page when it's just the four panels mm-hmm. of the first yeah. one is just a broken ornaments and toys by a Christmas tree, um, yeah. like a, a kid's new like a New York Yankees ball cap half buried in the snow next to a tire, like uh, some dog bones or animal bones or something near it, like a bowl and it's yeah. like the, the nuclear winter the snow and the ash just covering everything it's yeah. oh man yeah yeah this is really it's really good and and. Do you know who Dwight Gooden is? It's got to be something player, with. Yeah. He was a player. I would figure for the. Oh, actually, yeah. I screwed that up earlier. It's not a Yankees cap. It's a New York Mets cap because I'm looking. The New colors are all wrong. It's blue and orange. Yeah, that's New York Mets, okay. not Yankees. I, yeah, I should have got. It. Yeah, Dwight Gooden was uh, a New York Mets player for the longest time. He was a pitcher. Ah, okay. Uh, Pretty cool. Um, I also I like the first big splash page when we get the alien ship because it's so different looking. Yeah. And you, the colors are so different as well, too, on there. You got them up in the atmosphere there, so it's a lot brighter. Yeah, and just like kind of like the look and the shape of the ship. I've never seen something. It almost looks like yeah. a hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought, too. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting shape. And I, my page I like, too, is I like the ending page, too, where you have Santa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then that's just getting zapped and... Yeah, I'd, I'd put that up on my wall. You know, that would be kind of a cool Christmas gift, <laughs> a and, Christmas card. Yeah, and honestly, like the the look in his eyes, like it, yeah, like, there's tears coming out of his eyes. Like there, there's a sense of desperation. He's pleading with them, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's no good. And just there's that the silhouette of like all the reindeer and everything, <laughs> and him just flying off of the sleigh and just yeah, and then the pungent know. odor of cooked reindeer meat. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Definitely a fun story, um, you know. And I think, uh, what year was it? Nineteen eighty-six, eighty-seven. Yeah, eighty-seven. Yeah. So you know the the threat of the nuclear winter and all that going off. It's it's, it's a fitting story for that time. I remember as a kid, you know, that was always kind of looming around in in those those eighties years. So, mm-hmm. anyway, I think it was, yeah. yeah. It was just a really interesting story, and, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading it, and something I would have never read. So I thank you for a uh, little Christmas joy you've bring, given me. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm happy. I'm happy to spread spread the joy and, and spread new uh, new stories, as as is the spirit of Crusade Miss on yes, your show. So exactly. <laughs> um, before I let you go, uh, just a few other little Christmas questions that I've been asking some of the other guests are. Uh, favorite Christmas gift when you were a kid? Was it the Night Raven, or is there another one that sort of leaps out at you? Ooh, uh, the other one that kind of stands out is I got, my parents got me a bicycle. Um, again, this is the late 70s. It had to be you know, late 70s, early 80s. It was a chopper bike. Mm. So it was red, and it had the <laughs> big chopper front end on it, the big chopper handlebars, and man, I thought I was the cat's meow on that thing. <laughs> In the summertime, it was so cool. A fake plastic gas tank. Uh, what about favorite Christmas movie? Oh, that's a good one. Um, favorite Christmas movie? Uh, well, a must-watch around here is always Christmas Vacation. Yep. That's definitely a must-watch. I always like um, A Christmas Carol. Which I always, Well, you know, I like the Patrick Stewart version, mm-hmm. but I also like the... Um, 
some of the black and white ones as well too. So kind of just kind of in between watching several different ones of them. Yeah. Uh, I just like I just like that story. Yeah, no, I, I I do too. It's actually, I mean, I grew up watching like lots of different ones. Whether it was George C. Scott or Alistair yep. Sim or something. I mean, I I even yep. loved Mickey's Muppets. Christmas Carol. Yep. Uh, the Muppets yep. Christmas Carol with with Michael Caine is phenomenal. I love that yeah. one. Yeah. Just any kind of version of that, I I, I do like. So it's that's mm-hmm. that's such a great story to me. Yeah, it is. It's and uh, even that Jim Carrey one. Oh yeah, man, that yeah. was good. And, and I. I love that one, uh, A Christmas Carol, just like the whole story of it. And it's, it is, I think, topical for this particular show on this form because it is both a Christmas story. It's also a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really about the power of, of that sort of like the, the supernatural and the haunting and what the effect that it can have on a person's life. So I think mm-hmm. that's important. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. All right. Uh, well, uh, we've mentioned it several times, but uh, go ahead – Tell the listeners where else they can find you in the podcastosphere. Well, Ryan, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> in the podcast sphere, you can find me at Longbox Crusade at the Longbox Crusade Network, uh, where we have a variety of different shows out there: Crusader Chronicles, Action Film Face Off, Transformer Chronicles, GI Joe Chronicles. We kind of like the Chronicles theme here, but <laughs> uh, coming up soon uh, will be Crusade Miss uh, starting December 14th. Nice. So we're excited for that. That's going to be 12 days of the Longbox Crusade crew talking with multiple, uh, with a variety of different podcast personalities and some of our, our listeners as well, too. So yeah. we're excited for that. I am really looking forward to that and not just the episode that I am on. <laughs> Assuming you didn't scrub that whole thing and just re-record it with somebody else, but not yet, not yet. We still got to do some editing, but <laughs> you will do that late. Yeah, yeah, just in the nick of time, editing for some of that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, once more, thank you very much for being on this oh, episode. Thank you. Uh, ladies and germs, that wraps up Elvira's Haunted Holidays. We are going to take one more final podcast promo break, and after the commercial, I will be back with your listener feedback from both episodes 24 and 25. Y'all want to come back for that. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover each issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo of Marvel's first family. And in 2019, we begin our journey through the neon decade, the 1980s. Join us as we cover... All-time classic runs from John Byrne and Walt Simonson. She-Hulk and Sharon Ventura join the Fantastic Four. The Invisible Girl No More, here comes The Invisible Woman. Spin-off series including Marvel 2-in-1 and The Thing. Marvel's Secret Wars, The Trial of Reed Richards, and more. Find us at thefantasticast.com on iTunes and all other podcast services. The Fantasticast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? The last thing in Elvira's House of Mystery special that I wanted to call attention to is a gorgeous pinup in the back by Paul Galassi. It shows Elvira standing in a doorway wearing thigh-high black leather boots and a red Santa Claus jacket cinched tight around her waist with a belt. The jacket is open down to the belt to reveal her cleavage, and she's asking, Anybody ready for roasted chestnuts? 
It's a great image by Galassi, and Elvira looks sexy as hell while cheekily maintaining the holiday theme. Check the website post to see the pinup. I will be sure to post it there. Okay then, as promised, I am now going to address the listener feedback for the last two episodes. On episode 24, I covered Dead Man issues 1 and 2 with Doug Zavisha, and then on episode 25, Doug and I wrapped up the mini with issues 3 and 4, and then Rob Kelly and I covered a Spectre story from Adventure Comics 434. Since a couple of people commented on both episodes, I'm going to fold both comments in and address them at the same time. The first comment came from Chris Franklin, co-host of Supermates, JLUcast, and Superman Movie Minute, all here on the Fire & Water Network. For the Dead Man story, Chris said, It's always a pleasure to hear Doug, and I have always liked Dead Man, though often from afar. I remember wanting to get this miniseries and the Adam reprint mini, but they were comic shop only. I feel like I missed out. The art, not surprisingly, is gorgeous, and the colors are really something, despite the heavy leaning into magenta. DC was indeed pretty magenta-obsessed back then. Didn't Jericho's powers usually show up as magenta after images when he took over bodies, a la Deadman? I, I don't know, I'm the wrong person to ask about Jericho, but... Uh... And then for the Spectre story in episode 25, Chris said, Apparel was no slouch at drawing beautiful woman, but with Frank Thorne involved, is it any wonder Corrigan's girlfriend was hot? Red Sonia, anyone? Tja, no kidding. Uh, Martin Gray, who appeared on this episode, praised the Dead Man miniseries, but pointed out what he believed was a lack of logic in the naming of the brothers' brand, Boston and Cleveland. This is because Martin mistakenly thought that Cleveland was a state in the U.S. until other commenters corrected him. I, for one, was just happy to learn that ignorance about other countries is not a uniquely American trait. For episode 25, though, Martin said, Widow's Walk is a classic. Wasn't it covered on Rob's House of Mystery Treasury Edition episode? Yeah, indeed it was, Martin. In fact, I recycled my own synopsis from that episode of Treasury Cast just to save time. Trade secret. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast and DC OCD podcast said of episode 24, Great to have this show back, especially with Doug. I appreciated all of the Doom Patrol talk and the promo inclusion. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the show, Ryan. And for episode 25, Paul said, I have never read this mini, not sure why. Must rectify that the next time I am in a country that has discount comic bins. Uh, yeah, I still haven't watched Doom Patrol or any of the new series because I don't have the DC Universe app. At this point, I'm kind of waiting because I think next year HBO is launching a new service called HBO Max. And from what I hear, that is going to include all of the DC movies and TV shows. I dropped HBO Go a couple of months ago, but I might get HBO Max. Kind of, I, I need to hear more about what is included, but it's tempting. Uh, for episode 24, Bradley Null said that he collected the first two issues of the Dead Man miniseries, but never had the second half. Then for episode 25, Bradley said, It's strange to read the back half of a story I gave up on in high school. When I got an LCS, I decided to only buy ongoing series. The Dead Man mini is one of several I had no ends for. I'm glad you covered this so I could finally finish it. Great episodes. 
Uh, Edo Bosnar said, Well, you and Doug did a great job breaking down this four-issue miniseries, but I don't share your positive assessment. I read this story for the first time last summer, and I was sorely disappointed. Not even the absolutely gorgeous art by Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, could save it. In fact, I thought it was a real waste of such wonderful art. I just didn't like any of the cosmic and spiritual aspects of the story, and I found the lengthy bits of exposition in the third and fourth issues a chore to read. I also really didn't like the whole precipitating event, i.e. Boston borrowing Cleveland's body for a week and then getting him killed. You guys touched on how effed up that is, and for me, there's really nothing Boston did throughout the rest of the story to make up for causing his brother's death. I really couldn't put it out of my mind. Personally, I think Deadman works best when he's just helping ordinary people deal with their problems, like in the stories written by Len Wein in the character's all-too-brief run in the similarly all-too-brief dollar comic phase of adventure. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of Deadman story that I prefer as well, Edo. Uh, I do think Deadman works in a more grounded setting than the more cosmic, ethereal one here. But as I said, I think Helfer was writing the story to kind of get this stuff out of Deadman's system, more or less, putting him in a position where he would no longer have ties to the Eastern mysticism motifs that were really, they were part of his origin. So maybe I accept this as a necessary evil in that sense, uh, just to kind of get him to where he needed to be. I do see your point, though, that Boston never really has to face any additional consequences for his culpability in the death of his brother. That's kind of forgotten, and that's a big deal. So, yeah, I, I, I'm there with you in that sense. Uh, Ward Hill Terry also had problems with the Dead Man story, though his reason was slightly different from Edo's. This series is beautiful, but very disappointing in that it reset Dead Man's milieu. I had been a fan of Deadman since my first encounter with him, which was a small inset figure in a DC House ad. His look and his pose really intrigued me. Then he was in Challengers of the Unknown, and I learned about his powers. Then a team-up with the Phantom Stranger, and a team-up with Batman, all within a year. The Deadman stories in adventure comics drawn by Jim Aparo and JLGL, PPHN, were all gorgeous and joyful to read as well, especially Len Wein stories. Then, DC reprinted the legendary initial Deadman stories from Strange Adventures on good quality paper with new Neil Adams covers and no ads. Not four months after that glorious run ended, this miniseries was launched. And not only does this series effectively say all of those stories never happened, it gets rid of Cleveland, Rama, and everything else that had been established. Found that very disappointing. Ah, well... So, yeah, I understand not liking the series if you're a fan of that part of Dead Man's history. Since I personally didn't care a whole lot about Ramakushna or Cleveland Brand, killing them off didn't bother me a whole lot. The Irredeemable Shag, who hosts shows like Fire and Water, Who's Who, and JLI Bwahaha podcast right here on the network, Shag said, I have never read those Dead Man stories, but for me personally, the end result would help me engage with the character more. The Eastern philosophical elements of Dead Man always bore me to tears, so concluding that chapter of his life would be more in the win column for me. And Doug is always a delight. More of him, please. Yeah, so that sounds like Shag is more on the wavelength that Edo Bosnar is on in terms of what Dead Man stories he wants. Uh, Shag continued, regarding the bright pink color like fuchsia, oh, the mid-1980s at DC. So many books plagued with that fuchsia. 
Just look at the first couple issues of Crisis and Who's Who. Those were also burdened with the dreaded flexographic process, but the fuchsia compounded the problems. Yeah, Martin Gray also talked about the emphasis on the magenta pink tones at DC. Uh, Martin cited Tony Tolan's coloring of Green Lantern in the Bronze Age in particular. And finally, we got comments from Jimmy McGlinchey, who agreed with some of us about the eastern aspect of Dead Man's origin. This story was very good, though, Jimmy said, and some of the threads were picked up again in Dead Man Dead Again and the Dead Man 2002 series. Both of these series were written by Steve Vance with Andy Helfer editing. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, also provided the covers to the Dead Again miniseries, which would be a nice series to cover someday. Yeah, I would like to get to it at some point. Uh, Maybe that will be the next Dead Man book that I cover, or maybe it'll be the Dead Man Dark Mansions miniseries that Martin Gray keeps recommending. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what my next episode will cover or when it will come out. I have got a couple of Swamp Thing issues to cover, and I know which guests I'm going to have for those. But for now, yeah, that wraps up Elvira's Haunted Holidays, also known as Elvira's House of Mystery Special Number 1. I want to thank all four of my guests, Dr. Ange, Martin Gray, Kyle Benning, and Pat Sampson. It was great talking to all of them again. And thank you, dreadful listeners, for tuning in and supporting this show. This was just the first of three planned Christmas shows I have got coming this month. Next Friday, expect me and Neil to drop Volume 2 of A Daily Family Christmas on the Fire & Water Records feed. Until then... Sounds like jingle bells to me. Happy holidays, everybody. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Daily Zero One, or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, and the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. Special thanks to all of our generous supporters who keep this show alive. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Network, visit Patreon dot com slash fw podcasts midnight the podcasting hour is not affiliated with dc comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker music for this podcast is produced by neil daly any additional music audio clips or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended thanks for listening and have a good